Hello, listeners. Welcome back to the Key to Connection podcast. Happy holidays for those of you listening when this episode is released. Um, Today, Esty and I are talking with Paula of Miss Paula SLP. I know Paula through my sister, Julia, who you heard from on episode three, I believe, the first connection. Julia and Paula went to Northwestern together for their undergraduate, and then Paula went on to receive her master's degree in speech-language pathology, and she is now a certified speech-language pathologist who is also bilingual, so she serves the bilingual population, English and Spanish speakers, which is very important, as you all know from our episode with Judy Lemon how important bilingual SLPs really are and how invaluable they are to our field. Today, Paula talks to us about diagnosing kiddos who are bilingual with speech and language impairments and things you need to look for. She runs through her whole diagnosis process. Um, We talk about language attrition. We talk about interpreters and how sometimes things can get lost in translation, quite literally. We talk about studying abroad to learn a second language and how families can support multilingualism in the home. Paula also tells us about her new offerings. I'm very excited for what she has coming up and what families are going to be able to receive from Paula. So definitely stay tuned for that. So lots of great stuff for you today. We get to nerd out on some speech stuff, which is always super fun. And I hope you enjoy this one. Let's get started. Paula, can you tell us a little about yourself and a a little about what you focus on as an SLP? Yeah, sure. So I live in the Chicagoland area. Um, I'm a daughter of Chilean immigrants. I'm bilingual in Spanish. Um, I'm a wife and a dog mom. And um, I really enjoy having an active lifestyle. So my husband and I go sailing together and I also train for endurance events. So mainly half marathons and triathlons. And then as far as being a bilingual SLP, Um, I've worked in various settings. Um, I worked first in the schools. I had a side gig at an equine assisted therapy center. And then I worked privately in client homes. So I've always kind of been an independent contractor in addition to having a full-time job until the pandemic hit when it was a huge shift in things, obviously for a lot of us, but I decided to start my own practice and I've been doing that ever since. So My practice is called Miss Paula SLP, and we specialize in providing bilingual speech services in Spanish and English, and we offer those services in-home, on-site, and via teletherapy. Paula, you're a badass. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) It's been a wild ride, that's for sure. (laughs) Yeah, that is so cool, both your professional life and your personal life. Um, So, of course, we talked to Judy Lemon, a bilingual Spanish-speaking SLP about some of the issues faced by bilingual SLPs professionally. Um, and we thought this would be an interesting time. You're more than welcome to add on to that conversation if you'd like to, but I thought this would also be an interesting time to kind of talk about more of like the technical sides of bilingualism in speech language pathology, um, uh, because I know of course that's what you're an expert on. So, um, for example, like what are some of the Spanish influence patterns we see in bilingual children as they develop their speech and language? Sure. So I'm sure not most of your audience are speech language pathologists. You probably target like a wider demographic, but I can go through the common ones. I think that it's easiest to talk about speech sounds. So um, we know that, you know, in English, we have sounds like SH and CH, right? But those sounds are not found in Spanish. So that's one that's atypical. 
or learners of English that are speaking Spanish as their first language. Um, also, you guys probably know that in English, we don't have the trilled R like in Spanish. And that's often a very hard sound for English speakers to master when they're learning Spanish. So those are just a couple examples of uh, what we see in the speech sounds. And um, then of course there's like language examples. So I can give a couple anecdotes from my, my life because I actually um, grew up speaking English as my first language and it's still my dominant and preferred language. So even though both of my parents um, are from Chile and Spanish is their native language, I mostly learned Spanish in school. So one example is you probably know what cognates are, right? So there's true cognates where one word sounds similar in both Spanish and English, like shampoo and shampoo. Um, but there's other words that are false cognates, and these can be embarrassing if you're a second language learner. So I remember when I was little, I was just trying to speak and, and say like the feeling of embarrassment. So I was like, embarazada. And that doesn't mean embarrassed, it means pregnant. <laughs> so um, that's one example. Then um, another one that I hear some students make sometimes is like carpeta, which um, means folder, right? But sometimes they wanna think it's like carpet. So they're mixing up, you know, the words that way. So those are some examples. Um, of course, like when we're evaluating kids or adults, we look at the similarities and difference in their grammar. Um, so if we recognize any errors in their grammar, we try to see, is that influenced by the grammar in their other language? And we know that when an individual has a speech language impairment, those deficits exist in both languages, not just one. I actually have a case right now that I'm working on um, and I am not bilingual. I wish I was, but I work my, the school district that I work in has a lot of English language learners as our students. And um, I have one student on my caseload who there, the assessment that qualified them for speech services was just based on the receptive one word picture vocabulary test. That's it. They tried the expressive and they had to end it early. So like you mm. qualifying for services based on this one. And it was a virtual assessment and there were oh. internet issues and there was like all of these things going on. And so I'm working with this student and I'm like, I don't, I don't think you shouldn't be in speech therapy. Like these are things that are very normal for you because you're, you know, learning English as a second language. So for example, like um, switching the pronouns which I'm like, I don't ever see, I mean, I'm, sh maybe it could happen. I'm not sure. I'm not super experienced in the schools, but I don't really see that in my students that have a speech and language disorder. It seems like something that would be pretty clearly because of he's learning English as a second language. Totally. Totally. Right? Those Am I on the right track? Errors. Okay. Yeah. Those pronoun errors are very common and we see that right with English speakers, right? They might miss up like he and him or she and he, even in English um, speakers with a language impairment, right? So even more so is that one, an identifier of a language impairment, if it is happening in both languages, but also something that you should consider if English isn't their first language. So absolutely. 
Um, I can actually share what I typically do for bilingual assessments. So currently my company um, contracts with school districts. And so, you know, like where I live in Wilmette, Illinois, um, there aren't a lot of Latino or Spanish speaking kids, but when they do have the need for a bilingual assessment, um, they reach out to us. So um, I always like to include a classroom observation, get some teacher report. I always like to do a parent interview. Now, sometimes the parents are hard to get a hold of, so I'll try to send home a questionnaire that's bilingual if that's easier. Sometimes those get lost. So, you know, phone call, Zoom call, whatever they're able to do. And then I do a mix of both informal and formal assessments. So sometimes I do give the one word receptive and expressive vocab tests that are made for bilingual. So it gives them the opportunity to answer in either language. And I kind of know ahead of time which language they prefer and may do better in. And then um, I use uh, something from the Leaders Project is called the SLAM, School Age Language Measures. And uh, that's a nice way to get a uh, storytelling example. Sometimes kids are unable to give a story, so then it's a retell. Um, and they also like sequence the visuals that are provided. And it also gets to some higher level concepts and skills such as making predictions and inferencing. So there's a lot out there. Um, and then we we use standardized tests too. So one for preschool age kids is the BESA. And then I still do rely on the self, for example, in Spanish and English. All right, guys, I don't know what the one word receptive vocabulary test is. I don't even remember what it was called now. I don't know it. Can you guys explain it? Sure, I can. Um, it's similar to like the PPVT and EVT for all you other speech nerds out there. Um, and so basically the receptive one word has like four pictures on a panel and you say, show me which one is Apple, for example. And the child will have to point to it. So I always give the receptive first and then we turn to expressive and it's just one image on the page. And I ask them, what's this? Or, que es esto? and they have to name it. And on the expressive test, uh, it can be challenging for some because there's some that are like, what's one word that names all of these? And then they have to think of the category name. So that could be challenging for some people. Oh, okay. Interesting. Interesting. So, okay. So I'm glad you kind of broke down your assessment tools for us and what you do. Is there anything that SLPs should do to be sure to diagnose disorders and not differences I mean you mentioned like make sure you're seeing these patterns or like a disorder in both languages that's a really big one um is there anything else that we should kind of like SLP should be aware of yeah I think one thing you might remember from grad school is BICS and CALP B-I-C-S it's basic interpersonal communication skills and CALP is cognitive academic language proficiency so there's been studies that show that like BICS is easier to, you know, catch on to, right? So that takes a year to three years if you're looking at someone who's learning English cleanly as their second language. Um, and then a, a CALP may take five to seven years to develop. So that's something to keep in mind. You look at BICS and CALPs, and that's one thing to keep in mind. But also you have to think about um, when there's a simultaneous bilingual, that's someone who's learned both Spanish and English at the same time versus a sequential bilingual who's learned like Spanish first and then clearly added English. 
So for the sequential bilinguals, the Bix and Kalps, um, like measures of the one to three years for interpersonal skills and five to seven years to develop the cognitive academic language proficiency, that holds more true for that population. And then, um, you know, it's not always possible for either a private practice or a school or even a legal team or a hospital, right, to acquire a bilingual SLP in whatever language they need. So it's not always Spanish. Sometimes it's Hindi, sometimes it's Korean, sometimes it's um, French or Portuguese. And so if a bilingual SLP is not available, then I think ASHA has a lot of resources. Um, well, they're, they're gonna show you like the linguistic differences or similarities so that at least an English speaking SLP can kind of look more analytically at whatever samples they have and then see what's going on. Do you think that, I mean, I know it's not the ideal situation, but in an instance where a bilingual SLP is not available, um, working with a interpreter, do you think you can still get a quality bilingual assessment as long as it's someone who's, um, you know, an actual interpreter, yeah. not like a family member or someone? Right. I think um, my experience with interpreters has been limited given that I am bilingual, but from what I've seen in the school setting um, and in the hospitals for that matter, is that a lot gets lost in that interpretation. Um, and even if the interpreter has experience working with a speech therapist and knows that they shouldn't change the grammar, like how are they not going to, right? They have to speak in a way that makes sense for you. And so they might change like the word order and like it won't come across clearly. So I imagine it'd be really difficult for any interpreter to interpret someone who has a language disorder or a speech impairment, because how are they gonna, like they'll have to qualitatively say like, oh, and this person didn't pronounce the sound right or by the way, like his word order was all off. So it's kind of going to be influenced and anecdotal in a way that I think is less reliable. Okay. That makes a lot of sense to me because I work with interpreters right now in my early intervention population. And in English, we might have something that isn't as grammatically complex. And then when it's in Spanish, it's more complex and the child is having to add and like conjugate or add more to a single word to convey a meaning and um so in those cases like with the interpreter like what I'm saying isn't necessarily what I what ends up being targeted to the child if that makes sense yeah uh, and I'm sure the opposite is true the converse in that like if you want to know what the child says the interpreter might just say it to you in a way that you would understand but it's not giving you enough information about like if they're grasping the concept or not yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I just find that super interesting as I've like worked with interpreters and yeah, it's interesting to think like what you were saying, like, you're like, oh, well, I haven't really worked with many interpreters because I don't have to, but I think you do have a, you know, what you're saying seems very like something like only somebody who's a Spanish speaker looking in on those types of situations would realize what's happening, like as a Spanish speaking SLP to kind of see what's lost. So that's really interesting. No, that is, that is so interesting because it is like there's so many nuances in 
language and speech, I'm sure too, but I feel like more like language, there's more abstract things that you can pick up on that might not be like concrete and direct, but it's like something that if you're familiar with the language and you're familiar with speech language pathology, you can like put them together. And then when you have two different people having to do that same job, then there's like, it's lost in translation. There's friction with different people and everyone's mind is going, you know, and I'm sure in EI, especially, which I have experience in as well, it's the child, the parent, the therapist and the interpreter. Mm -hmm. So there's just a lot of eyes, a lot of ears, a lot of mouths moving at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And everyone is like processing things possibly differently or they're perceiving things differently. And even if, you know, we're all trying our best to get everything interpreted correctly, there's like unconscious things that we could be doing that is affecting the message, you know? Right. And um, I was just in an IEP meeting the other day uh, with a parent because I see the child privately and the child had a school assessment and it was bilingual and there was an interpreter present. And so at the beginning of the meeting, right, I introduced myself and I said, just to make this easier for everybody, I will be presenting my part in both languages and fine. But then there were portions of the meeting when I'm like holding my tongue because the interpreter is not the sharpest. She has to ask for repetition. And so <laughs> it was hard for me to sit back, but I had to let her do her job. Mm, yeah, that's so interesting. Interpreters hold a lot of power. They're literally interpreting two different messages across to people. They're the key, like the gatekeeper of the conversation. So it is a super interesting concept and phenomenon. I'm sure there's like interesting research done just about like how effective interpretation is and stuff. So super interesting. And I, yeah, IEP meetings, you get so many people talking so fast. And I know for me, you know, I have to constantly remind myself, okay, I need to stop talking so that she can interpret, you know, she or he can interpret this in a manageable chunk of information but then people just keep going and then I I they must have such great working memories because I I wouldn't be able to do it when a child is bilingual we know that there's a possibility to lose a language can you talk to us more about that sure yeah so that's known as language attrition or language loss and it may be easiest to think about when a child is learning one language first and then learns a second language and no longer can support the first language. So when I talked earlier about being a sequential bilingual, that's oftentimes what happens. And again, it kind of comes down to like what the family values or what the school system values, right? Or what the society values. So um you know, there's people that move to the U.S. from remote areas of Central America, right, where this dialect is spoken, and almost nobody speaks that here, right? So you can imagine that if someone comes to the U.S. at a young age, and if they're not speaking that dialect at home because they're speaking Spanish or English, they will lose that language over time uh, if it's not supported. So it's one thing that I warn parents about especially as they look at schooling options and, and think about, you know, what, what they want their child to be able to understand and say in the long run. Um, but I've also seen families that have to make this decision because they're not being supported. 
And so they've maybe been told that they should speak English at home or um, their child has like a severe cognitive impairment. And so the resources at school are such that the teachers and paraprofessionals can only support them in English. So they are kind of given no other choice, no other alternative because that child has a hard time learning as is. And so in those situations, it could be hard to learn both languages or nearly impossible. So sometimes that's the unfortunate reality, but oftentimes we can tell parents, don't worry, we can support your child to be a successful bilingual. You just may have to work harder to support that at home. And here's what you can do to make sure that they have all of their linguistic resources at their disposal. Mm, yeah, interesting to hear about the circumstances in which it's not possible, but I do just want to highlight how important it is to have advocates such as yourself out there for parents to, you know, spread the word that bilingualism is a positive thing for their child if if possible to maintain. And you know, I think a lot of parents do come into therapy thinking that they need to stop speaking Spanish or sticks only English. And it's just like a really good reminder to just get that word out there to as many parents as possible that, um, you know, they, they should and can use whatever language is most comfortable to them and is most, you know, they can keep their heritage languages. I think you called it. Mm -hmm, Definitely. So Paula, how did you become a bilingual FLP? Sure. Um, So as I mentioned, uh, my parents, when I was growing up as an only child, we just spoke English in the home even though they were native Spanish speakers, but I made it my mission to learn Spanish, Um, not just because I wanted to understand the culture better and be able to travel to Latin America, but also because I knew it would serve me well in my career. So I, um, you know, started in middle school learning Spanish, continued in high school, got a minor in college. And then when it came time to apply to graduate school, I actually wasn't that motivated by the schools that had bilingual programs. I was more motivated by the cost of attending a program. So I ended up going to the University of Illinois, which I think was a great choice for me. And when I was there, I just found opportunities to work with Spanish speaking kids. And I had a couple great clinical supervisors that prepared me well for that. And then I was really fortunate when I was looking for my first job as a CF, I found a school district near me that had a very solid dual language program. So that also helped. Interesting. Did you ever study abroad? I did. So I spent uh, six weeks in Barcelona. That was a program that Northwestern University offered in the summer. I didn't have to jeopardize graduating on time. And um, I've always traveled with my family. So having family in Chile, travel to Chile, have dual citizenship, we traveled to Mexico and Spain. So definitely recommend um, to learn a second language to immerse yourself in that language. Helps a lot. Yeah, I was just going to ask you about that. Um, but yeah, I I wish I would have done that. But It's definitely the best way to learn. Yeah, by surrounding yourself in it and really having to use it every day. So it's not the same if you go to an all-inclusive resort and Cabo. (laughs) Everyone there speaks English. On the topic of kind of like language, like learning a second language, and I guess in the case of language acquisition, 
when you're educating families about bilingualism, um, what are the different styles of input that you can teach a family so that a family can kind of like teach a child to be multilingual? That's a great question. And I think it varies a lot family to family, right? So I think when, when our neighbors, let's just say when I was growing up, they probably assumed that we spoke Spanish at home, um, but I didn't, right? And so it has a lot to do with the attitudes of the parents and kind of what they hope to do for their children, right? So a lot of the parents I work with are really proud of their heritage, their culture, their language, and say they do want their child to learn Spanish. And they teach them that at home. So what I tell parents, um, my my main advice is to speak in the language that is most comfortable for you, that you feel like you can provide the best model, right, for language and speech uh, for your child. Now, if a family maybe has one speaker who's native Spanish and one who's native English, that provides an opportunity, right, for the child to be exposed to both languages right off the bat. Um, So that model is called one parent, one language. And from what I've heard or what I understand, it can be really hard to do. So it's not always that clear, right? It, It could get blurred. And sometimes what happens is a family decides, okay, we really value Spanish. We want our child to learn it. So we're just gonna speak Spanish to them And then if, you know, me and my husband are talking, we'll speak in English, something like that. So that might be minority language at home. That's another model that parents might use. Um, There are other models as well. So both parents might use both languages, or you may decide to only speak a certain language in a certain space. So it could be as simple as we'll speak Spanish at home, and we'll speak English anytime we leave the house, right? Because that in the U.S., that's like a very natural medium uh, or arrangement. So, you know, when we go to the park, when we go to the supermarket, when we go to church, when we go to the doctor's office, we'll just speak English, but at home we'll speak Spanish. So I um, also just wanted to mention that I, I tell parents uh, about school models that exist, and maybe the two of you are familiar with some, but There's obviously English language support in most schools. It's just like a a right that families and kids have. But um, there's also like transitional bilingual programs and dual language programs that offer, you know, either support and instruction throughout schooling. And and some districts even have um, programs all the way up to high school that provide students with a seal of biliteracy by the time they graduate. So that's a pretty neat thing for the people that have access to that. Also something that I found really interesting learning about in um, college and grad school was the benefits of being bilingual and how good that is for your brain. So for me, I'm, you know, if I ever have kids, I definitely am going to do everything I can to, um, you know, help them become multilingual. I do know there are multiple benefits. Um, I know that it can help with just like the neural connections. It can help with your just flexibility of thinking, right? So you're constantly thinking in two languages and accessing and making connections um, between what you know and what you hear. Um, I think there might be connections to memory. But I also thought it was interesting to learn that um, 
brains can like the location of where the language is processed and stored it can even be different and um people who are multilingual I thought that was so cool to learn about um it's like how does your brain even know you know it's crazy yeah everyone can appreciate the more social or cultural benefits right just think about all the heritage speakers of Spanish, right? That's the only way they can communicate with their grandparents a lot of times. So that could be just one fundamental reason to promote that home language. Um, and then, like I mentioned, I think it's a very valuable tool for anyone's career, right? Even if it's Chinese, you know, there, there are Chinese programs and that can open up a lot of doors. Yes, absolutely. And I think you also mentioned traveling. Um, so being able to travel to a different part of the world and being able to still connect with native speakers, if you know that language, um, you know, that's a really big benefit too. So oh, I think this is a perfect part to tie into your, your whole podcast theme, right? Connecting to people and really kind of understanding people at a deeper level. So one way we can do that is by understanding what they have to say and understanding where they've come from, if it's somewhere different from our experience. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really amazing point, Paula. And I've always found it so fascinating. You know, I, I am monolingual and I just find it really fascinating, like the way that somebody who's bilingual is able to like perceive the world differently because they have more, they have like a different, a whole other language to describe the world and and then similarly like they have a whole other way to connect with different parts of the world and different cultures and um different people that I don't so it's just like I just have a lot of respect for that additional it almost feels like just like an additional or a more rich or more full way to view the world and connect um so yeah that's just really amazing and I think as SLPs, we have a lot of appreciation for like our little code switchers, you know, like the kids who are able to code switch and speak with speak in one dialect with their peers and speak another way to their teachers and at home. And I think um, I just want to blast out how much of a cognitive and social skill that is. And it's something that should be thought of, you know, highly like these these kids are amazing. So just want to throw right. that out there. That's a good point. I think there's a lot of misconceptions and myths about or misunderstandings, I guess, about code switching and um, how that looks like it's a weakness or a deficit or something that we shouldn't do. But really, when a lot of kids and people do it, it's intentional and it has a purpose. It's not just because they have a lacking vocabulary. So, Paula, what are you currently working on right now? In addition to the clinical work and supervising graduate students, I've been developing a new product. So the idea behind this is it's an online parent coaching program. So it's part education through a course module and part live parent coaching delivered via teletherapy. So it's called Bilingual Speech Online, and it's intended for parents and caregivers of Spanish and English children, Spanish and English speaking children. And it's focused on children ages one to three. And so basically it's guidance from me as a bilingual SLP on how parents can help further the development of their child's language skills 
And I mean, you know, Izzy, that parents are often super concerned at this age. They don't know what's typical, especially if they're first-time parents, and they're just always looking for help. And then especially for parents who are concerned about their child's language development or they feel something's wrong, right? I always say that the parent instinct is usually right. And um, so I'm trying to kind of give them all the tools that we give in early intervention, right? So strategies for what they can do at home on a daily basis and very naturally within routines-based approach um, to help their child and to help develop their language skills. So vocabulary, even, you know, pre-verbal skills like gesturing. I talk about gesturing. I talk about imitation, uh, modeling, you know, holding objects near the parent's face just to, um, you know, ask for like, look at me, like look up here. <laughs> so things that doesn't come naturally for many parents and that we work on in early intervention. It's kind of all consolidated into this 12-week course um, that parents and caregivers can can do on their own time. But there's um, in the 12-week program, there are three points of contact with a bilingual SLP for that individualized feedback and parent coaching, you know, just to answer any questions that come up. And then there's an option to do a six week course as well. That is so, so cool. Can people join from around the country? Yeah, even around the world. So mm -hmm. the website is online.misspaulaslp.com and the page is live. We currently have, are running a special, but it's set to launch and be available in January of 2023. That's so cool. I know Ooh. I can definitely recommend some of my families to that. Um, Great. And I'm happy yeah. to schedule times to discuss one-on-one -on -one with parents, you know, if they're not sure if this is going to be a right fit or what the benefits are, or like what's included, you know, there's, there's a lot of questions and people are sometimes hesitant uh, when it's an online product. So I'm happy to be there to just kind of reassure them that this is, very legitimate and it can be very helpful. So I've already gotten some feedback from my pilot families and they are loving it. And they're just so proud to share the progress of their kids. You know, when they say a new word, um, it's very exciting. Mm, yeah, that's so rewarding. And working in early intervention, especially I do teletherapy as well. So um, parent coaching is everything and that connection with parents is everything. And it's a paradigm shift for some of the parents because um, a lot of parents want a therapist to come in, take their child into the other room for an hour and give the child back and say like, oh, they did this today. But this really flips that on its head and says like, parents, you you are the ones who are learning. You're the ones who are going to be delivering therapy in a way um, 24 hours a day. So you know that firsthand, of course. So how important is the connection with parents when working in early intervention? Oh, it's critical, of course. So I'm fortunate enough, as we've discussed, to be able to speak with them in their native language if they speak Spanish. That just helps them understand the concept so much more easily. And um, I also have a better understanding, I think, of their culture. Um, of course, we can take courses about cultural competency, but it's different to like read about it than to know it and feel it. So sometimes I catch myself and I have to backtrack or just like 
you know, be more considerate of where they're coming from. So I'm not going to say that I'm perfect in any way, but I think that we have to realize that not everyone has the same opportunities that we were given or that we have. And so you have to oftentimes meet the parents halfway. Um, also in early intervention, sometimes our ideologies might clash with the parents, right? And we think that they should dedicate at least five minutes a day to reading, right? And then they're like, no, we don't read ever. Why would we do that now? So I try to like show them like, look how fun it is. Or like, you know, introducing books. And if you don't have books, go to the library. Like I try to spin it as a positive, even if it is going to be something that's different for the parents. So oftentimes it can be a little bit hard to bridge those gaps, but I do try. And of course, as you were saying, the parents are the first and best teachers for their kids. And research has shown that it's most effective and you see the most growth, right? When parents are involved and uh, they are really working on these skills day in and day out, right? Morning, noon, and night. That's what makes those changes. Yeah, absolutely. I think that gives families so much power, but also peace. Like I know a lot of my families have said like, I'm just so thankful I know how to communicate with them now, or I know things to do with them now to kind of help them communicate. And I just know it like has reduced the stress level for my families, at least from what they report. Um, so I think it's really powerful to, to connect with parents and to meet them where they're at, like you're saying. And I definitely, yeah, have a lot of respect for the routines they already have in place and the things they already like to do. Like, I'm definitely not one to say, oh, you need to go buy these things or, you know, play this way. It's like, you know, whatever the family's doing, I want to give them the tools that fit their life, you know, and I think that's super important. It absolutely is. And and even this week, right, I had a, a first time visit, right? Now, it was a family that's been working with another one of my therapists, but I go in, right, I have a different style, I have different expectations. So I had texted the mom like, hey, if you could hold so-and-so's snack, I'd like to just use that as an opportunity to work on language. But I arrived and the grandmother had already given the child her snack. And so that was out the window. <laughs> so I'll try again next week um, because I do think it's like a valuable way to work on the skills. And then, so we ended up doing like a coloring activity and mom had never withheld the pencils, the colored pencils, before so I'm like mom hold the box of pencils the child will sit here and then she will ask you for each different pencil and so it was just like totally novel but they color like every day so it's just funny yeah it is so funny I love that like kind of helping parents figure out how to follow the child's lead but also take control at the same time and I think that's a good example like withholding and then it's not as chaotic there's not toys everywhere they're not grabbing all the pencils right right. and we're not like we're not being mean about the withholding it's just about just have the child try you know have her look at you (laughs) and (laughs) that just like that little bit of communication whether it's nonverbal or verbal just changes the dynamic usually in a way that's positive. And then the parents are pleasantly surprised when it changes. So that is exactly the kind of stuff that I teach in bilingual speech online. And um, I just wanted to serve a wider range of people, you know, reach more families. And um, that's my goal through the program. 
Yeah, that's so cool. You're doing amazing work. Thank you. Yeah, that's exciting. And I feel like when parents might be concerned about their kids and they might not know what to do or maybe their concerns aren't being validated by a pediatrician or other family members or something, being able to empower them and involve them in contributing to developing those skills. I feel, I mean, I don't know what it feels like to be a parent and have a child like that, but in my mind, I would think that that would make them feel a lot more, um, what's the word, like supported, but also in control of the situation because they're able to contribute it to it. And so they can kind of put their concerns, the energy that's going into their concerns, they can put that into what they can do to help. And the beautiful thing about speech therapy is that you can virtually do it with anything, any activity, any setting, anywhere with anybody, you can you can do speech therapy because it's all about communicating and connecting. So mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. So awesome. I definitely agree with with all of what you just said. And I like to teach parents like that have never heard of early intervention, right? What early intervention is. That's a great place to start. And and there are all these resources available to you. You just have to know where to look. And so that's a huge piece. Um, and like you said, I think by educating parents, right, we're really empowering them to feel like they can do anything and they don't need a professional necessarily to <laughs> make these changes in their life and, and see the change in their child. So we talked about the connection in your work, especially with early intervention. But as more of a broad question, this is the question we ask all of our guests that come on. What would you say is the key to connection? I think that it's really important to be genuine. And whenever we're talking or spending time with someone to really be fully present. So this call, for example, that we're having right now, um, I have my phone on do not disturb. I don't have other windows open. I'm not worried about what I'm doing next. And that's a very rare thing, I think, for a lot of us in today's age. We're constantly, constantly connected, right? We have distractions pulling us in a million directions. And um, it just shouldn't be that way. I think we lose a lot. And we know that multitasking is bad. <laughs> we might think we're we're rock stars for getting so much done, but it really hurts you in the long run, I think. So um, I think that, you know, if we just make time to listen to one another and and not just listen to what words are being said, but try to look deeper into what someone's thinking and feeling, we learn a lot more about them. Mm, that's really cool, really powerful. I've been thinking about this recently because, yes, like you on the podcast, I always have my phone on do not disturb. It's my time where I'm 100% you know, locked in on what's going on. And then same with my client sessions. But then I think it's so unfortunate how like at the end of the day, when we're tired, and we're like, we just want to veg out. That's the time when we're with our loved ones, maybe. And then we're like on our phone scrolling. And it's just like, such a bummer that, you know, we don't give sometimes the most important people in our lives like that presence. At least that's kind of what I've been thinking lately. What do you guys think? Yeah, I totally agree with you. And something, Paula, that you said in your answer that kind of stuck out to me was like the key to connection can also be disconnecting from those distractions 
mm-hmm. so that you can focus on the important connections, which is to the people in your life. So yeah, what a, what a great message. <laughs> I think that Izzy, to your point, right, about those distractions at home, I think I found that too. Um, and what I've heard some families do is just like put the phone somewhere, like especially if it's during dinner time, right? or a family gathering, right? Or I've seen weddings, right? Where they say like, please don't have your phones, right? We've got a photographer, we've hired them. Um, just enjoy the moment. So I think people are are becoming more aware that the technology that we have is, is a blessing, but it's also a curse and that it distracts us from what's really important. Right. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. Good luck with everything. I'll be following you. you guys. Aw, thank you. <laughs> I appreciate you. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of the Key to Connection podcast. You can connect with us on Instagram at the Key to Connection podcast. DM us if you'd like to join in on the conversation or have an idea for our next topic or guest. Tune in on Thursdays for new episodes.